Listen to God's word from Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. If the Christian life is a journey, how are you going to make it to the end? Are you in any danger of giving up along the way? And what keeps you going? What tempts you to give up? The passage we just read is a warning about the dangers of falling away. The writer of Hebrews warns about the deceitfulness of sin and the prospect of unbelief. This section of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is like a running commentary on Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11. And that psalm uses the people of Israel as a negative example In Psalm 95, the Lord calls his people not to imitate their ancestors who rebelled in the wilderness and didn't enter the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this idea and he points us to the fact that this rebellious generation was composed of the very same people who God delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Part of his argument here is based on the fact that the people of this generation were witnesses to the greatest miracle of salvation in the Old Testament. So these rebels in the wilderness, they couldn't say, God, if only you would act in some decisive way, we would believe and follow you. Now, these are the people who had eaten the Passover lamb and plundered the Egyptians and walked out of Egypt on dry ground through the Red Sea. These people had stood around Mount Sinai and they had heard the thunder of God on the mountain. They had seen Moses come down from the mountain with tablets of stone. They had seen his face radiating from being in God's presence. They had been restored themselves after their sin with the golden calf. They had been fed with manna from heaven. They had been given God's law and the tabernacle And this was a place where heaven touched earth in the Holy of Holies. Again and again, God had miraculously provided for this people. Every day, God's presence was clearly and miraculously manifested to this people. But when this group of people, this generation, was on the doorstep of the promised land, they lost heart at the report of the spies. Remember, the spies went out and and only Joshua and Caleb felt that they could go forward. 
you read that episode, the people grumbled and they lamented of ever leaving Egypt. And they even said, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The very people who had been redeemed from slavery by God's powerful hand were the ones who fell into unbelief. And they did not make it into the promised land. This, this generation, by and large, was cursed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they died. The author of Hebrews then draws a parallel between that generation and new covenant believers. He says in chapter 4, For good news came to us just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the author of Hebrews is saying they heard the good news too, that God would deliver them into the promised land. And they had every reason to think he would because of his faithfulness. But they sinned in unbelief and they did not enter God's rest. And now he's saying, you, New Testament Christians, you have seen God work miraculously through Christ. And a rest remains for you if you hold firm to the end. The hope is that we can be finally and ultimately delivered from the power and the penalty of sin, and we will enter God's presence forever. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, we need to hear the warning that Israel provides. He wants every believer to understand that we are on a pilgrimage and that we should strive to enter God's rest. We are like Old Testament Israel. They were literally walking from Egypt to Canaan. We're also like the Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who was on this allegorical journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. But all along the way, there are pitfalls. There's the dungeon of Doubting Castle. There's the, the byways of legalism. There's Vanity Fair. All kinds of ways to trip up along the path. The temptation to unbelief is ever-present. The deceitfulness of sin is never far away from any of us. So with that all in mind, let's go back to that question. How are you going to make it to the end? I'm not calling you to question your salvation, but just to ask you, how is it that God intends to preserve you? The writer of Hebrews' warning tells us we need to think carefully about our answer. If we answer that question in a, a proud way or a dismissive way, we're missing something of what it takes to endure to the end of the journey of faith. So no genuine believer will arrogantly dismiss that question. But we're not meant to flounder in doubt or pessimism. There's a call to action in this passage from Hebrews. So look again at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another daily as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is our last sermon in a three-week series on Christian speech. And first, we looked at speech to put off. We're supposed to put away slander and malice and lying to each other. And then last week, we looked at the truthfulness of God. And we saw that since God is the God of truth, we are to be people of truth. We're to tell the truth. And today we're drilling down even further into what we're to tell, the truth we are to tell each other. And as we do so, we're going to focus on these two kinds of speech, exhortation and encouragement. We're supposed to exhort and encourage. 
What I want us all to see is that exhortation and encouragement are God's means for our endurance. Exhortation and encouragement are two key parts of our answer for how am I going to make it to the end? You see, in the midst of this warning about falling away into unbelief, what's the writer of Hebrews' solution? Part of it is, exhort each other daily, as long as it's called today. So he's saying, since you are in that company of believers bound for the promised land, work together to be those who listen to the gospel and obey it. Exhort and encourage each other so that you might not fall away. The careful theologians among us might say, well, you're really being too man-centered here. The real answer to how we're going to endure to the end is that God will do it. It's the grace of God. I certainly agree with that. I'm not denying that at all. But I want us to see that one vital way that God gives us his grace is through the exhortation and encouragement of our brothers and sisters. Or to flip it around, God intends to preserve your brothers and sisters until the end by using you to exhort and encourage them. He intends to use you as an instrument of his grace to exhort and encourage your brothers and sisters. And he intends to preserve you through the exhortation and encouragement of others. Now, you may notice I've kind of snuck in this word encouragement, right? That word doesn't occur in Hebrews chapter 3, but it does occur in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you would just flip over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. This is a very familiar passage. We reference uh, this passage almost every week when we talk about our moment of silence at the end that we would reflect on how to stir one another up to love and good works. So read a few verses starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's still talking about that day, right? And he's still talking about endurance, holding fast to the end. And he says this time, though, not exhort, but encourage. Actually, he uses the same Greek word. It can be translated either way, depending on the context. So we're, we're talking really about this same concept of, of calling one another to keep going. Sometimes that takes some more of a, a teaching or maybe warning role as an exhortation. And sometimes that takes some more of a comforting role or encouraging role. We're called to do this to help each other keep going. If we're going to endure, we need to be taught the things of God. and We need to be aware of the dangers of sin. Jesus told us this in the Great Commission, right? We're to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. That's exhortation. To be a Christian is to be an exhorter and to be exhorted. Again, the meaning of encouragement is more straightforward. You can just kind of see it in the word, to be encouraged, to be built up. Sometimes it has this flavor of to give comfort. So if we're going to endure, we need to be frequently reminded of God's promises. We all need encouragement, and we are to encourage others. Again, our brothers and sisters are dependent on us to encourage them. Again, I want you to notice this link between encouragement and endurance. 
We need the fellowship of our brothers and sisters if we're going to hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. Now, it's not only the author to the Hebrews who links exhortation and encouragement. We find it throughout the New Testament. So in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas exhorts the brothers in Antioch to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Paul writes that he sent Timothy to the Thessalonians to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved in these afflictions. If we're to endure to the end, if we're to avoid making shipwreck of our faith, we need brothers and sisters to encourage us and exhort us to keep going. We need to see that it's not just people who are weary or going through trials who need this. This is what all Christians need. So even if there's no particularly intense trial in your life, there is always the temptation to sin. So if we say we don't need encouragement or exhortation, we're basically claiming to be perfect and to need no help from Christ to endure. As I looked up places in the New Testament where encouragement and exhortation occur, it became clear that wherever Paul went, his goal was to encourage Christians to keep going. Here's just one example from Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 22. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul had just been stoned, and he makes a point to encourage the brothers. You'll find something similar in Acts chapter 15 and then again in Acts chapter 16 when Paul's in Philippi. He does the same thing in chapter 20 in Ephesus and the region around Macedonia. Paul also says that he longed to come to Rome in Romans so that he and the believers could encourage each other. He wanted to see them face to face to encourage them and to be encouraged by them. Now listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. Paul's understanding of the Christian life is that it is sustained by encouragement. And he gave himself to that work. His mission was to make disciples and then to encourage the disciples that he made. That's why he devotes his life to the missionary work and to writing all the letters that he did. If it feels like I'm going on and on about this, it's because I am. In our individualistic culture, we've neglected our need for encouragement. We resist admitting that we need anyone to teach us anything or to give us encouragement. But we generally have not acknowledged the role that the church is meant to play in our Christian life. That our, our brothers and sisters in this local church are meant to play. Our default approach seems to be that I'm going it alone. And if, you know, if I need any help, I'll let you pastors know. And we assume that each of our brothers and sisters in the church are just kind of operating the same. 
No news is good news. They'll tell us if they need us. But the New Testament default is that every believer needs encouragement. And every believer is called to encourage their brothers and sisters. We desperately need to have our default changed and to be conformed to God's word. Even just the way we think of each other. When we think of each other, we need to see that's a brother or sister who needs encouragement and exhortation. And the way we think of ourselves. I'm a person who needs the encouragement and exhortation of my brothers and sisters. So my goal in this long introductory point is to convince you that we all need this. We all need encouragement and exhortation and we all need to be giving it as well. We've all been given this job. This is God's appointed means of ensuring that we reach the end of our journey. So I hope that the author of Hebrews' command always rings in our ears. Exhort one another every day. For the rest of our time then, I want to lay out five principles for encouragement and exhortation. These aren't exhaustive because our relationships are so varied and we're going to face different circumstances in our lives, but I hope that they lay the foundation for exhortation and encouragement. Some of these will be rather quick and others will drill down on a bit more. So the first principle is that encouragement and exhortation require conviction. Encouragement and exhortation require conviction. If we're going to teach each other and build each other up, we have to first be convicted of the gospel for ourselves. The kind of speaking that the New Testament has in mind when it uses these these words, exhortation and encouragement, it's not half-hearted speaking. It's not kind of apathetic, distant speaking. It's deliberate speaking. It's on purpose. And it's sincere. A lot of times you'll see the word that's behind encourage translated, I urge you, I appeal to you. It's full of strong emotion. It comes from someone who's convinced of the truth of what they're saying. Again, just look at the Apostle Paul's life. His his desire to encourage led him to travel around the ancient world. Which is no small task. And then when he couldn't travel, it led him to write a letter which, you know, he couldn't just drop in the mail, right? It required, required him uh, finding someone to take the letter there. And he's writing this letter often in jail. On what paper? Who knows, right? He, he spent all of his energy to encourage. You can hear also the conviction and urgency in Hebrews 3 when the author says, take care and exhort one another every day. To put it negatively, We won't be encouragers if we're indifferent to the gospel or unconcerned about our brothers and sisters. So to be encouragers and exhorters, we must believe the gospel. We encourage others because of our own amazement at God's grace to us. We exhort in confidence that God's way is good and right. We also exhort in confidence that the ways of sin are deceptive and lead to destruction. So if you want to take the first practical step towards being an encourager, then feed yourself with the gospel of grace and you'll have something to share with others. If you want to take the first practical step to being an exhorter, fill your mind with God's wisdom and God's law and you'll grow in knowing when you need to 
teach or warn. To exhort and encourage them, we need this conviction in the gospel, but we also need another kind of conviction. And that conviction is that God works through his word. The gospel is God's power to save and sanctify. This is a major implication of John's message from last week. God is the all-powerful God of truth. And he has made us his, his truth-speaking people. He's even given us kind of an official role as ambassadors. Listen again to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. So instead of being tossed about by waves of doctrine, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see how powerful God's word is. As Christians speak the truth in love, we grow up into Christ. The body grows as Christians do the work of the ministry. Remember, if you remember the context of Ephesians 4, this isn't the job of the apostles and pastor teachers. The pastor teachers are to equip the saints to do this work, the work of ministry, speaking the truth in love. And it's through this every member ministry of speaking the truth in love that the body grows and builds itself up in love. So just understand that Jesus, in his manifold wisdom, decided to build up his church through his people exhorting and encouraging one another. You have to be convinced of that. You have to be convinced that God works through his word. So exhortation and encouragement requires those twin convictions. Conviction about the gospel for yourself and conviction that God works through his word. Principle number two. Exhortation and encouragement are ideally done in person. They are ideally done in person. This takes on a kind of an extra special meaning after a year of, of Zoom meetings. But we've already noted Paul's example of journeying long distances to see brothers face to face. Again, if that failed, he would try to send someone from his missionary band to encourage those people and then to get word back about how they're doing. In Hebrews 10, we see the link between encouragement, endurance, and in-person fellowship. So again, just to remind you, Ephesians 10, I mean, Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So if you want to be an encourager and to receive encouragement, you have to make time to be with God's people. That means prioritizing gathering here on Sunday mornings to hear God's word preached and to fellowship, but also the rest of your week. Make space in your weekly schedule for God's people. How can you grow in prioritizing relationships with brothers and sisters in the church. This principle kind of cuts both ways. So we need to understand that exhortation and encouragement happen best when we're with our brothers and sisters. And when we know that we're going to be with God's people, we should do so coming ready to encourage and exhort. We should prepare for these meetings each week by praying for each other. Pray through the membership directory and consider 
Is there one of these members you're praying for that God might have you encourage this week when you gather? Is there something God lays on your heart from the scriptures that, that you might share with them or an experience in your own life that might encourage them? Paul's letters, though, are proof that encouragement and exhortation does not have to happen in person. It comes in many forms. And we're still being encouraged by reading these letters, even though Paul is long gone to be with the Lord. So by all means, encourage each other with phone calls and text messages and Zoom meetings and emails. But there's no substitute for being with each other. If we want to obey Christ's command to exhort and encourage, we have to make a point to cultivate relationships in the church. So exhortation and encouragement are ideally done in person. Principle number three, and this is where we'll spend a bit more time. Exhort and encourage with Christ. Exhort and encourage with Christ. For this point, I want to briefly look at an example. So you can turn to another passage in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. In verses 13 through 17, the author makes an argument that God made an oath to Abraham. And when God made that oath, he swore by his own name because there is no one greater for God to swear by. And so God's oath and God's name are these two unchangeable things that he references in the first phrase of verse 18. Let's read beginning in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a whole lot going on here. You have to know something about Hebrews, Hebrews is, is talking a lot about the fact that Jesus goes into God's heavenly sanctuary, which is of which the earthly tabernacle was sort of a dim copy. Jesus goes into the real thing. He's the great high priest. Now, I don't expect this all to be as sophisticated as the author of Hebrews was when it comes to putting the Bible together, but we can learn from him, and we can especially learn from his focus on the supremacy of Christ. So here his encouragement comes from Jesus being our high priest. And he says, Jesus, who he calls our hope, has gone into the curtain. He has entered into God's heavenly presence as a forerunner. And he is our sure and steadfast anchor of our faith there. So when we are facing trials and all the world is kind of being tossed around, we know that Jesus is in God's presence interceding on our behalf. And he's gone there and not left us behind, but he's gone there and he's going to bring us there with him. He's the forerunner of our faith. There's so much, again, wrapped up in here. It shows us that Jesus Jesus is not only the great high priest, but he's the great offering. And his blood was more precious than the blood of bulls and goats. And so that he can enter God's sanctuary. His offering has been accepted by God and found sufficient to purify us from our uncleanness. We are going to one day join him because we are purified from our sin through his offering. So here, the author of Hebrews holds out Jesus' priestly work and Jesus' sacrifice as our sure and steady hope. He's encouraging us with Christ. Don't doubt 
Look to Christ, your high priest. Now this is just one facet of Jesus' person and work. One tiny sliver of what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. Friends, there's no end to the amount of encouragement we can derive from meditating on Christ. Meditate on all the facets of the gospel. You'll encourage your soul and you can use those to encourage each other. To encourage each other with Christ. A great book to help you do this is a book called Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. It's a really wonderful book divided up into like 30 small chapters. And each one just focuses on a different aspect of who Jesus is. And uh, I'd love to get you a copy if you want one. So just ask me after church. I want you to notice also, though, how much scripture and theology lies behind the encouragement the author of Hebrews gives us here, right? He, he references Melchizedek, who's back in Genesis and the Psalms, and he references the priesthood, which is founded for us in the book of Leviticus, which we're planning to study early next year. So here wrapped up in this one gospel presentation is a whole mountain of scripture and theology. And I say that because I want you to see that when we encourage each other in Christ, we're really encouraging each other with the scriptures. And that's what Pastor John prayed for us in the pastoral prayer, that we'll encourage each other with God's word. Study all the scriptures so you can know Christ, so that you can encourage each other. Encourage each other with Christ. Now thinking about encouraging each other with Christ may make more sense than exhorting each other with Christ. How do I exhort you with Christ? How do I warn you with Christ or teach you with Christ? What does that exactly mean? Well, let's again look at an example. So Ephesians chapter 4 again. If we look at verses 17 through 24, we see Paul exhorting the Ephesians with Christ. Listen to what he says here. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy and to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have learned heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you get the sense of this passage. He, he talks about the, the ways of the Gentiles walking, and in the middle he inter, interjects, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And then he goes on to say that learning Christ is to put off the old self with his deceitful desires and put on the new self in righteousness and holiness. This is how we exhort one another with Christ. We remind each other that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And we exhort with Christ by calling each other to imitate Christ. By saying exhort with Christ, I hope you can see that teaching one another is not legalism. Calling each other to obey Christ is not being holier than thou. We are obligated as members of Christ's body to call each other to be faithful to our Savior. So there are times when we may need to say to each other, brother, the way you are living is not the way you learned Christ. Look at how Christ has called you to put off what you're doing and to put on righteousness. 
We see that exhortation does often include warnings about the dangers and deception of sin. So that's what the author of Hebrews does in chapter 3. Don't we all need frequent reminders that sin never keeps its promises? So we need to exhort each other that the way of Christ is good, even if it calls us to sacrifice right now in the present. And we need to exhort each other that the way of sin leads to destruction, even if the way of sin gives us a temporary kind of pleasure or comfort right now. Exhortation means warning each other, and it means teaching each other. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said he sent Timothy to the church to establish and exhort you in the faith. We need to establish each other in the faith. Studying scripture together, or maybe a good book of theology like Knowing Christ, is a good way to exhort each other and establish each other in the faith. When we catechize our children, we're exhorting them in the faith. It's clear that the church's public ministry is the primary place that happens. So hopefully right now you're being exhorted and established, built up in the faith. But our life together is supposed to be an extension of that ministry that begins here. In his book, Word-Centered Church, Jonathan Lehman says that ministry of the word begins in the pulpit, but then it must continue through the life of the church as God's word becomes absolutely central in the lives of members and bounces back and forth to one another. The word reverberates or bounces around as in a canyon. So we want to be a church where the word of Christ reverberates through our congregation week by week as we exhort each other every day. At the end of the argument that we saw in Hebrews chapter 3, at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, the author concludes with a, a final plea to, to strive to enter God's rest and a plea that no one will fall away. And it's in this context that we find this famous verse about God's word that you all know, even if you didn't know where it was. We read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's because God's word is living and active that we exhort with the word. We exhort with Christ. Because God's word lays bare our soul so that we can turn from the deceitfulness of sin and cling to Christ. So encourage and exhort with Christ. Principle number four is encourage each other with testimonies of grace. Encourage each other with testimonies of grace. For this principle, again, I want to look at Paul. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, he writes of how he wanted to go to Thessalonica, but he was hindered by Satan. And finally, he sends Timothy to encourage them, but also to get a report back about the Thessalonians. So listen to what he says at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about, your, about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Do you see how much weight Paul put on the, the prosperity and grace of these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica? For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Paul was encouraged when Timothy brought back this report, telling, them, telling him about their, their faith and how they were standing fast. 
And he, he's joyful about this, even in the middle of what he calls affliction and distress. He's comforted by God's work among these brothers and sisters. And this isn't the only place in Paul's letter where you'll find something like this. Few things encourage a believer's heart like hearing of God's life-giving work. So one way to encourage each other is by telling each other how God is working in your life. Have you found Christ to sustain you through something hard? Share that with a brother or sister. Has God been teaching you something as you've followed him at work? Encourage the heart of another believer with what God has been teaching you. Sometimes I I like to ask people if they've been reading anything encouraging in God's word. And I hope that if I ask you that question, you won't think I'm just kind of checking up on you to make sure you're doing your chores and reading the Bible. No, it's because I want to be encouraged with the things that God is teaching you. I'm encouraged when I hear of your faithfulness and of God's grace to you. And if it turns out I ask you that question and you haven't been reading God's word, that too is something that's worth sharing with another Christian so that you can be encouraged and exhorted to keep pursuing Christ. Encourage each other with testimonies of grace. Now I know that doing this requires vulnerability. After all, God's grace is for sinners. So testifying about God's grace in your life means you're testifying about your own weakness. Testifying about God's grace will include telling about how you've suffered or perhaps how you've sinned and yet found God to forgive you and be faithful to you. These are very personal things and our instinct is to keep them private. But consider this. Perhaps God has brought you through your experience so that you can comfort others with the comfort you've received from God. That was Paul's pattern for himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said that the God of all comfort comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you do a word search for comforted on your computer in the Bible, you'll find this just pops up like red everywhere. How has God comforted you through Christ? And by the way, comforted here is the same word for encouragement yet again that we find in Greek. How has God done it? How is God comforting you right now? If there's a story of God's grace in your life, comfort another believer with it. You may have something you've experienced that you think the whole church would benefit from. We'd love to to give you opportunities to share those things. So if that's true for you, please tell one of the pastors. We'd love to encourage the whole church with how God has comforted you. Encourage each other with testimonies of grace. Finally, encourage and exhort wisely. We should encourage and exhort wisely. In the passage we read from 1 Thessalonians, we find this verse, uh, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It takes wisdom to know what's needed, right? Who are the idle? Who are the weak? Who are the faint-hearted? It's not always obvious to us what to say to someone. There is one clear principle here that according to Paul, a wise way to love in every situation is to be patient. So at the very least, patience is always called for. Does that describe the way you speak to your brothers and sisters? 
you know, spiritual change and growth almost never happens really quickly. It's almost always a process. So it's very likely that the sister that you come across today who needs an encouraging word, that she'll need that same encouraging word next week and next month. We learn slowly. Be patient with each other. Exhort and encourage wisely by being patient. I hesitate to even bring up this principle about encouraging wisely because I don't want to give us an out, right? We might think, well, I can't really, I don't know what wisdom is in this situation, so I'm just not going to try to encourage or exhort at all. But if that's our approach, we are going to be an anemic church, starved of encouragement. We'll be a disobedient church. So if we want to grow in our wisdom, if we feel the need to grow in wisdom when it comes to encouragement and exhortation, and to be clear, every one of us needs to grow in wisdom, including your pastors, when it comes to encouragement and exhortation, the way to do that is by practicing encouragement and exhortation. We're not going to always do it well, but we can learn from every experience. And if we try, if we practice encouragement and exhortation, we're going to learn to love each other. We're going to learn how each other responds to things, just the way that a husband and wife learn those things through their relationship, just the way you know each of your children and what brings out the worst in them and what brings out the best. Practice encouragement and exhortation so that you can learn encouragement and exhortation. Wise encouragement and exhortation must be humble. We're not to lord things over each other. And we have to be open to seeing when we fail in our encouragement and exhortation, when we veer off the path or we're too heavy-handed. We have to be open to being corrected. Our humility and encouragement comes from the reality that we're ultimately all in the same position. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're all striving to endure faithfully to the end. So as your pastors, we don't encourage you and exhort you out of some sort of ultimate impeccable authority. We teach based on what we've learned from Christ in his word. If we have any authority, it derives from being truthful to Christ's authority. We are all first sheep before we're shepherds. So exhort and encourage wisely by pursuing humility. Finally, pray for our church's work of encouragement and exhortation. Pray that we will do this vital work. Pray that Christ will keep his promise to work through our encouragement and exhortation of each other to build us up into his likeness. Pray every day for your brothers and sisters that they would strive to enter God's rest. Pray that none will fall away through disobedience and unbelief. Wise exhortation and encouragement are graces that God gives to his church. So we should plead with God for him to make us an exhorting and an encouraging church. And this is how we will hold fast to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for your humbling of us. We know that sometimes humbling is, is painful. It makes us realize our weakness and sin in new ways. But we need to be humble. 
We need to believe that we need this encouragement and exhortation from one another. We need to be broken of our independent and individualistic spirit. We need the humility to cling to Christ and to be amazed at his grace and to share it with each other. Father, we do pray that you will keep us, that we will hold fast to the end. We pray that we will enter your rest. We thank you for the promise that that you hold out to us, that there is rest for our souls in Christ. Help us to help each other reach it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.